They are. Um, good to see everybody. The last of the series, indeed, a series, Your Own Personal Jesus, once was a, uh, still is, I suppose, a Depeche Mode song. Um, let's pray. Lord, thank you for, um, again, this hour, um, for our church, for this day, um, now for your word, Lord, place us properly beneath it. Um, give us ears to hear, Lord, and let that be the difference. In Jesus' name, amen. So today, trying to wrap this up, trying to find a thread to summarize where we've gone. Hey, Alan, come on in. You on the hike? No. Oh, too bad. Um, um, trying to find a thread to, uh, to pull all this together. Um, your own personal Jesus. What's been some of the themes that we've connected to? Uh, backing up, uh, asking the first questions. If we have our personal Jesuses, so to speak, it would mean that we have placed ourselves beneath a, uh, a law, beneath a principle, beneath an orientation. Um, we have been placed beneath a law, a principle, an orientation. We have a set of glasses or an operating system. These are some of the language that we've used the last five weeks that we see the world, that affects the way that we uh, relate to one another, um, consider God, um, the way that we think. Um, you know, it's an infection that goes all the way through. That's the metaphor that's been around for, uh, for millennia with the idea of original sin, that it's infected us right through to, uh, to the, uh, the original parts of who we are, DNA, which we would call now, but of course we wouldn't have said that um, 2,500 years ago. Uh, but that we have in parts of us um, uh, something which is always at work which is always then, as it is always at work, uh, creating a Jesus, so to speak, creating a Jesus that we need. Um, something which is going to deliver us, something which will redeem us from whatever this is, something that will move us from point A to point B, something that will give us salvation. So we've been looking at that in lots of different ways and using that as a vehicle. So, hey, Frank, to, um, to consider first five um, chapters of, of John, um, John, uh, the Gospel, chap chapters one through five. So thinking about a way to pull this together, um, on the heels of last week and the, the way, that, the little quote that I put up, um, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. So this tripartite way of describing human nature, and not just human nature, you know, abstractly, but way to describe you way to describe me, what my heart loves, something called my will. That's a good question. What does that mean? My will chooses, and in my mind, the part that I think that I have the most control over, uh, it justifies. But then you start to back that up, and you realize that the mind is thus captive to the will, which in itself is captive to the heart. This is called an anthropology, uh, a description of what it means to be a human being. Uh, uh, it's another way to describe control. That's a word that I come up with this morning as I was thinking about our class. It's a way to describe the way that I want to place myself in a position out there in the world to somehow, to some degree, maybe not complete mastery, but at least some degree to be able to say that I have some control over my life, that I have some ability to influence my life, my relationships, my thoughts, my emotions, my actions, my reactions, my proactions, my goals, my hopes, my dreams, my fears, 
that somehow I have some part in in uh, in influencing my own life, in control, in other words. So then we begin to this, ask these questions. Um, what uh, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Um, uh, and everything then becomes a matter of the heart. And there's all sorts of journey songs, which of course make it everything about this. Um, or who sang that song straight to the heart? You know, I mean, every every good song from 1980 um, is out of this, and most of us were right there. We get it. We understand it. Um, we resonate with this stuff. That it's all really a matter of the heart. What controls us? Our hearts. So what controls our hearts? What laws do we place ourselves under, or are we placed under? Active or passive tense works both ways. Uh, that that tell our soul, tell our minds, tell our bodies, tell our wills, whatever words we want to give it, tell our hearts what to do and when and how and why. And different ways we've looked at it over the, the, uh, the course of the, the last five weeks. I've asked questions like, what stories do we tell ourselves to make life more bearable? It doesn't have to be awful, to make life more enjoyable, just to make life meaningful. What stories do we tell ourselves? What ways does our mind justify our will and our heart. And so we looked at that, especially the first couple of weeks, right up to the funny sort of ash conformity experiments, like 1967 or something like that, a famous experiment in psychology um, where, uh, you know, just group conformity. It's a, it's a real thing. Um, and it describes such atrocities as how the concentration camps in Russia or in Germany could have existed, you know, just three, four kilometers away from from towns, from cities, where people smelled the smoke, where they delivered bread and milk. And they saw, they walked through the, the sign, um, work makes free, uh, Arbeit macht frei. Uh, they saw that, and they told themselves a story, which made it okay to say, here's your bread, and to receive, you know, a couple of, uh, a couple of dollars for it. And they, they didn't they told themselves a story. Their mind justified something that their will and their heart really couldn't absorb. And that's human. There's no stone in my hand. That's who we are. Um, what models have we constructed to look at the world? What bumper stickers, actual, and we look at that trying to be funny, um, or metaphysical, that we put out there to say, you know, this is my life, this is what I really believe in, and this is what I want you to believe in too. And so vote for so-and-so, or don't do this, or, you know, live under this kind of pithy little saying, you know, life is good or whatever else, um, you know, that's, that's part of the model that I want to work under. And so we looked at some art throughout. I won't do a lot of this. Um, but this is the one. This is what I'm going to remember because I say this all the time. You know, all I do in my classes is, you know, I sort of say, what am I thinking of and what would I like to think through more? And so I thought, you know, I'd like to do something with this. And then I run into pieces like this or I bring them back out. And, uh, and they stick with me. And I think this is probably going to be something that sticks with me because I never saw it before as I've looked at this a lot. But these massive amounts of space on each side of the cross. And so I'm trying to say, what? The space? What in the world was Cranach doing, the, the, the artist here, with all this space? Why did he put so much space in between the preacher, Luther, holding his hand on the scripture and pointing to the crucified Christ, and then the hearers, some of whom are apathetic, um, some of whom are fixed right on, on the crucified Christ, but some who are turned away, some who are looking right at us, some who seem to have some disdain. If you saw more um, uh, detail, you'd see that. Um, most are in the Word, so to speak, with Luther, but some aren't. Uh, but all that space, 
one way I think about the space. The space is on either side, it's, uh, it's where all these orientations, these models, these stories, these justifications that I give myself to make my life have meaning or bearable or purpose or enjoyment, it's those spaces which are being funneled. It's, it's all those models which are being funneled in those spaces to the cross. And so it's a way of even thinking about justification and sanctification becoming more like, um, well, just being changed by the word of God is those space is being collapsed as we're being funneled into Christ Jesus and him crucified. You know, one of the great, again, keyhole verses out of 1 Corinthians, keyholes that unlock much of the scripture and much of life. I resolve, Paul says, to know nothing, nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, that the crucifixion of Christ somehow absorbs, takes everything, huge statement, everything into itself. And so that's one way I'm making sense of the space. But then in other ways, um, how do we describe correctly the simultaneous experience of the two hearts, the system um, of, uh, of yet a sinner but also loved? And we saw this one last week, um, a piece that's always arrested me or has for several years. Uh, this, these systems, these ways that we don't have any control of for what our heart loves, our will chooses, and our mind justifies. So it's deeper than what is readily apparent these systems and these ways which from an early, early, early age, some might even say in utero, of course we don't really know that, but it's a good theory, uh, these systems, these, these ways, these, this, this model of seeing the world and making sense of it, where I know intuitively that it's relationships, stupid. <laughs> it's all about relationships. Relationships are what matter. Relationships are what give life any animation whatsoever. And so these systems, these ways of keeping somebody close to me, keeping somebody visible to me, keeping someone within arm's reach, someone who's with me, someone who might be for me, and then very importantly, vice versa. So that someone, uh, that if they're not only visible to me, but I am visible to them, and that they uh, reach for me that I have some place in this world, some meaning. And here we see Adam and Eve in each of the ways that they're covering themselves. Adam covering his eyes, looking down, steep, this is just a portrait of shame, is all this is. All this is just, that's, all that I just described is longhand for what's contained in the five letters, shame. Um, Adam with his head just buried in his hands. I can't bear to see what I've done. And then Eve, covering up as best she can the naked parts of her body, I can't bear to be seen. And so that complementary look of I can't bear to see or be seen. Um, it's relationships. Can somebody see me? And can I allow myself to be seen by another? Maybe, beyond all hope, is that possible? Um, we've tried to undo the onion and de-layer uh, the complex ways that uh, the will chooses and the mind justifies to protect this stony heart shame. Um, so we've looked at that the last couple of weeks. And then one no less than Louis C.K., that great piece. I mean, the, the farther I get away from it, it's been about two years now, the more I think about that, um, where he was describing why he hates cell phones and why he doesn't want his daughters to have cell phones. And he says, you know, that big empty, that big empty? And... 
you know, Conan Bryant doesn't have any idea what to do with that. And we looked at that last week. And he's like, yeah, I know it. Yeah, you know, he tries to be funny, but, but he's right there. You know, late night national. Uh, you know, that big empty that everybody has. And suddenly, it wasn't funny anymore. <laughs> there was something going on. Uh, and he connected to a Bruce Springsteen, Springsteen, yeah, Springsteen song, Jungle Land, um, that somehow it brings that up, that it stirs the pot. And our wounds and our fears and our hopes um, all rise to the surface. Um, you know, not unlike um, Christmas Eve here or something like that. And Phillips Brooks, of course, gets it. The hopes and fears of all the years, my years, not least of all, um, find that they're now to the surface. And I hand them over and say, they rest in ye, thee tonight, this little baby. Um, so we've tried to come through all this to see, you know, what are all the ways that we create a need, or better, that we create, what are all the ways that we, uh, we create or justify or choose some mode of salvation, which is another way of saying that we create layers and layers and layers where we don't actually see things the way they are. Sometimes we're close. Sometimes we're 180 degrees away. What ways do we not see things correctly? So all of this reaches right to the bottom of our soul. And here's the new piece, and I'll put this out. This will just stay up the rest of the time. Hey, uh, not everybody that I think of is dead. This is a living artist, I think. Um, thank you for somebody snickering. That was supposed to be funny. I realized that I'm doing this, talking to May May afterwards. like, man, my classes get so serious. Um, I try to be, like, light every so often, and even Louis C.K. doesn't make people laugh. I was like, Oh, well, that's just, that's part of what it is. Um, uh, this is a statue outside of a church in Essen, Germany, called The Listener. What's he got here? What, what does he know? He gets it. He gets that that's our position. This is the position of a Christian. You know, overwrought arms, cupping the ears. What's, what's he saying here? Echoing Luther. The organ of a Christian, the chief organ of a Christian, is the ear. Not the eyes, not the feet, not the heart, not the, uh, not the hands. We don't run you know, to the unevangelized continents to, to share the good news. We don't, we don't do good works with our hands. That's not the chief organ of a Christian. It's not the chief organ of a Christian. It's not C. It's not St. Francis of Assisi. Whether he said it or not, it's always attributed to him. Um, uh, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. In other words, go out and do good works and let people sort of know God through being nice to people. You know, that's important. Nothing wrong with that. But that's not the gospel. That is not what undoes this, uh, this stony heart that gets all the way to the bottom and reveals the, wings, the way things are actually and gives us the freedom to have this simultaneous experience of maybe someone, although I can't bear to see it or be seen, maybe somebody else does. Um, the ears. Why? The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Um, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the gospel, the proclamation of the way things actually are. That Christ Jesus, this is a trustworthy and true saying, came into the world to save sinners. And that, that uh, what would be another one? Uh, what we heard today from John, uh, that we love because he first loved us.
this comes to us, this apprehends us, how? Through the ear. And we hear our proper relationship to God. Remember, it's relationship, stupid. Um, uh, We hear our proper relationship to God as creatures to the Creator. We don't see it. We don't intuit it. This is not what four out of five dentists would agree on. We don't just sort of, we aren't born this way to just kind of know this. We have to hear this word proclaimed. How will they hear if there's no one to preach to them? Um, the eunuch asks Peter. Uh, the, that, that faith, Paul would say, comes by hearing the very words of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Um, hear this trustworthy and true saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of which I am the chief, and yet it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. To be free, even as we are stuck in this position as Adam and Eve, to hear in this position that redemption and salvation and deliverance and restoration and joy and contentment and reconciliation and unification and defragmentation are actually, not hypothetically, but actually possible, not just as an idea, but as an incarnated reality. This reality can be made meet in your life and in mine. And that is the gospel. That is the whole that Christ Jesus was delivered over for our sins and raised for our justification. And we hear that, and it changes us. We don't see it. We don't think it. We don't walk towards it. We don't help another into it and find sort of in this common brotherhood of man that we have um, hope. It's not enough. It's not enough. Your own personal Jesus will never be enough. The actual Jesus comes in. And so the questions now come out. What, uh, what do you need him to be? What do you need Jesus to be? And then what is he actually? Um, do you need him to make your life have meaning? Do you need him to help you raise your kids? Um, you know, I do, of course. But that's not enough. You know, if that's all that Jesus is, he did not die for me to be a better parent. That's not why Jesus came. Um, he didn't die so that I would have a career as a non-ordained minister in a really lively downtown Episcopal parish. He didn't die for that. That's not enough. That's not now, that's my personal Jesus. I need a Jesus that I can talk about every week and that people come and listen to to give my life, you know, meaning and so I can understand, you know, all that stuff. But that's not it. The actual Jesus is something else. Um, and paradoxically, the Jesus that, um, well, when we turn to Jesus for these other ways, we don't actually get the very things that we want. Um, but when we turn to the actual Jesus, we actually get the things that we need. Where do we see that? This is also a summary, but I leapt past it last week, so I want to give a little bit more space to it. Um, again, out of Romans, Romans 3, 9, I think it is. No one seeks after God. Um, well, wait a minute. I thought that seek ye first the kingdom of God and all the righteousness shall be, shall be added unto you and all that sort of bit. Well, no one seeks after God. People, we seek after the fruits of knowing God. We seek after contentment and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control and faith. But no one seeks after God. We seek after the fruits of being known by God. But here's the paradox. Um, When we seek after Jesus and pursue him for other ends, to be a better parent, to have a better marriage, to have my life meaning, to 
to be more efficacious in my work, to do something other, to, 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 to seek after Jesus, to bring us to something else. It's not enough. Jesus is not a means to an end. He is the end itself. And that's again the Shema Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Um, that when we come to him, just like this, so that all we do is we listen, and now we're in the passive position as creatures, we wait, and he speaks, and God acts through speaking, and things happen. What sort of things happen? Our feet become busy. Our mind is transformed. That was the scripture today. Our eyes now suddenly see things that we've not seen before. In other words, revelation. These things that have always been around are now being revealed to us. Uh, our hands are busy helping other people. We can't separate these things any more than we can separate heat from a fire. But Shema Israel, hear that the Lord your God, the Lord, is one. Uh, Christ is the end unto himself. And all the scriptures drive towards him. So what's our scripture today to help us get there? Um, John 5, the last one, where we're going to see this really strange, almost legend um, in the way it sounds, of this invalid who had been um, invalid, uh, invalid and weak and lame for 38 years. 38 years! Let me think, you know, what were you doing on July 4th, 1976? You know, the bicentennial of the country. I think that was 38 years ago. Um, I was eating watermelon <laughs> at the celebration, nice pun on words, uh, from in Sealy, Texas, uh, and I was, what, six years old. Um, that's how long ago it was. Um, this, this man had been laying around by this pool waiting for a healing. Um, but before we go there, any thoughts so far? I tried to recast everything uh, that we've been talking about, trying to capture it all underneath a, a big thread, um, the thread of control and then bringing it out to say that you know, the one that we need is an end unto himself. He's not a personal Jesus. He's just the Lord. Shema Israel. Hear Christian. Um, Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, probably the first creed of the church, the Christian church, was Jesus Christ is Lord. Connecting to the, uh, the, uh, the great summary word, what they called the Shema, uh, of hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and Jesus Christ is Lord, and that's the position. So, any any thoughts before we go to John five? And they're going to look at a, very quickly a Thornton Wilder story, which some of y'all are going to know. Well, John five, this healing at the pool of the Sabbath. Say a little bit about it. Um, it's a nice little uh, if if you're in these kind of uh, cocktail parties, um, which actually exist in Birmingham, which is kind of funny. If you're at a cocktail party and you want to sort of show a little Bible trivia, seems like a non sequitur, uh, you know, tell them to turn in their Bibles to John uh, 5, 4, and it's probably not going to be there. And there's a few verses like that because, uh, uh, well, I don't need to go off on that. Anyway, it's probably not there. I'll just leave you there and you'll be like, what? So, so here's um, John 5, uh, 1 through 15, but of course it's going to omit verse 4, or most translations do. Uh, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Beth Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, and in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. 
One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and he knew that he'd already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going down the steps down, and while I'm going down, another steps down before me. I'll tell you the context there in a minute. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, uh, but he, the man who had, the, the invalid, the former invalid, answered him and said, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So what goes on? And I guess i got to say a little bit about why. Um, verse 4 is omitted. We do not have the original texts, like as, as the, the, the Apostle John became the Evangelist John, and he, he dictated or maybe wrote himself the, the, the first time the, uh, 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 the Gospel of John. We don't have that piece of paper. And of course, they didn't have printers. They didn't sort of submit it online. You know, they didn't. They didn't. They didn't have a Xerox machine. I know I'm being funny. I mean, you had to copy it, and so it was a really laborious and expensive process. And so they copied the first one, and then they had you know another one. And now there were two. You can see where I'm going. So they had two, but then they went off and made many, many, many more. So that in some cases we have, and this is where you know people like Mark Genelette you know makes his living. Um, we have. Uh, Oftentimes, in some places, the New Testament text, far more than anything else in all of antiquity, I want to say that again, far more than anything else in all of antiquity, we have thousands of copies of, of, uh, of the different New Testament texts, especially some, some more than others. Um, letter of Philemon, we might have 600, but the Gospel of John, there may be you know, something like 3,000. I don't know that, but something like that. Um, that are dated um, and well attested, but that's where you have to really go through a painstaking process of, of, of going through this text criticism, it's sometimes called. The reliability of them is extraordinary. Um, but if you're doing some, some, some Bible study work in your small group or whatever, every once in a while you'll notice down on the bottom, like in Mark 8 or here in John 5 or in John 8, it'll say early manuscripts do not have dot, 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 dot. Because you might have these little sort of scribal errors, as they're called. As one person was taking, you know, either the original text or a copy of it, and he was writing in just one instance. Maybe he didn't have a tittle, or he didn't put a jot, which is the dot of an I, or something like that. And so now that's called a scribal inconsistency. And as an aside, we don't have a time for an aside, but people like Richard Dawkins um, and some of the, quote, new atheists, they'll come through and they'll try to say, um, and this is well attested. This isn't just sort of me sort of on a little rant. Um, they'll try to say, how can you place your faith in a book like this? You know, going back to the original documents, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of inconsistencies. And to take that at face value and say, yes, but literally, no exaggeration, 98, 99% of those inconsistencies are things like he didn't cross a T or he put two T's instead of one. You know, in our kind of language. I mean, small, minimal, 
what we might call a split infinitive or um, you know even less than that just you know not 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 crossing a t uh, nothing in very let me say in very few instances I can, in fact I can't think of anything in the canon nothing that is formative in doctrine has this kind of, of error so that's just something to sort of have in your box of tricks as you hear hear that out there on NPR or, you know Fox News or wherever else you're listening so anyway verse 4 is not in the early manuscripts but it's in some of the later ones that have been copied and it um, either happened or was a legend it really doesn't matter just added back in where the legend was the idea was that um, these invalids would lay around this pool and if an angel came down and stirred the water the first one in the pool was healed of whatever their infirmity was and that's why this man and many many a multitude of other invalids were waiting just waiting this position as it were for the uh, the waters to be stirred so they could throw themselves in or if they had money so somebody you know their servant could chunk them in the pool um, you know hopefully they would be healed uh, and this man had been there since 1976 waiting for someone to put him in the pool and every time he tried he was the last he wasn't the first one he was the second the third the last whatever to make it and then Jesus comes on the scene and just like the other two instances with uh, or the other instance with the woman Samaria last week uh, Jesus takes the initiation and he says and he knew the man and he knew that he had been there for 38 years he saw his story he saw his context he saw his pain he saw his suffering he saw the justifications, the stories, the layers that he placed upon himself. And he came up, and what an odd question. Did you catch the question? What did, he, what did he say when he came up to the man? Do you want to be healed? I've been here for 38 years. Yeah. I won't go too far into that, because there's a lot of places you could go with that in terms of counseling or psychology or whatever else. Call it learned dependence or you know, conditioned victimhood or whatever else you want to call it. But it's just descriptive of in some ways lots of what I've been trying to sort of put in front of us and ask us to reflect on um, you know what have we been laying with uh, slain with for th and, and, and have been have been lying with for 38 years for 43 years for 65 years uh, what are these these knots and these layers that are calcified and placed over us where in fact the question isn't quite so ludicrous if the Lord showed up and says do you really want to change You've known this. This is all you, what you've called you has been this for all this time. Are you so quick to give that up? It's going to be a lot. Uh, and the sick man um, still said, it was really more of a complaint than an answer. Uh, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going in, another steps in before me. And then what happens? Here, God acts how? Through his speech. And when Jesus says, get up, take up your bed, walk, the action of God is now made manifest through his speech. Again, God creates through his spoken word. And that day was the Sabbath. Um, lots to say about that. Uh, let me just sort of get here because I want to find a good, good room for an exit. Lots to say about all that and how that's a process of repentance where the man came from a place of not calling a spade a spade, not seeing things the way that they are actually by going to the Jews much like Adam when the Jew says, who healed you? 
And just like when God came to Adam, you know, back here, uh, when God came to Adam, he says, who gave you the apple? Who told you you were naked? How did you know this? Uh, because he says, Why, Adam, where are you? You know, well, I was naked, and so I hid from you. Who told you you were naked? Yesterday, that didn't bother you. Yesterday, you didn't even know that. It's like, well, that woman, <laughs> remember the one that you gave me? She gave me the apple, and so I ate it. And now I'm naked, and so I hid. Strong echo there, where the man says, um, uh, but they asked him, who healed you? Uh, and he says, um, in verse 13, Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. It was there, uh, and there was a crowd in the place. No, that's not where it is. They asked him, Who was the man that said to you, Take up your bed and walk? And he said, I don't know. That man that, who healed me, I don't know who he is. You know, you find him. I just know that he did this. And Jesus goes back, seeks him out again in the temple. And he says uh, in this confrontation, Sin no more, lest um, something worse, judgment, shall happen to you. What's that all about? I don't think it's a, an invitation or a command to mind your P's and Q's. Get busy now and let your life reflect what um, I've done for you. You've been given this gift. You better, um, in sort of a, a, what's the Tom Hanks D-Day movie? Um, not the longest day, but... Saving Private Ryan. Saving Private Ryan, the last one. Earn this. This wasn't sort of an earn this word. It was a... Uh, Look, see what the Lord, your Lord, has done. See the way things actually are. No longer do you have layers and layers and layers that you have to work through, but see the way things actually are. When somebody says, who healed you? You know. You know. You know the word. You know the power that surged through your body when I said, take up your mat, walk. Uh, you know, you know, witness to that. Depend upon that. Um, no longer have that, um, that layer to protect you. So let me end here. I was reading a, a book this week by Henry Nouwen, complicated but really wonderful figure. Um, and this invitation to see things as they are, uh, and now in a completely different context, said, When I was a young man, somebody once told me that I should never show weakness, for I will be used. I, would never, I should never show vulnerability, for I will get hurt. And I should never depend upon others, for I will lose my freedom. And so he was saying, I think, a very humanly understandable place. Don't show weakness, vulnerability, and don't depend upon another. Be autonomous. Have control over your own life. Don't show weakness, for you'll be used. Don't show vulnerability, for you'll get hurt. Don't depend upon others, for I'll lose my freedom. And the man said, or the man heard, sin no more. Um, this, not his actions, but this orientation, this operating system, these glasses that say don't show vulnerability, weakness, or dependence. That's the consequence of the fall. That's our sin. That's why we here... The Advent emphasized not so much our, our sinful acts, what we do. You know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't fool around, don't do something with somebody you shouldn't. You know, it's not so much that. Why do I always go to that accent? I don't know. <laughs> um, but it's that lens. It's the deeper part. Sin no more. See the way things are. That as you're tied, like Adam and Eve, originally to this,
Now, in my spoken word, I have changed everything. Here, now, something else. Hear that I am already weak. Hear that you are already weak, and that my power is made perfect in your weakness. See that you are already vulnerable, um, and that your pain is a source of your strength. And see that you are already dependent upon him in this position of hearer, always listening for the word of God. For man cannot live on bread alone, but by the very word of God, that for our sustenance, for our life, for our health, for our healing, for the fruits of knowing God, which is what we all want, but we don't want God himself to hear that we've actually been placed into a relationship with him already, and to hear that we are vulnerable and are taking a risk of being weak and already depend upon him, and that now, as we capture it in one of our colleagues, I see that service of him is, in fact, perfect freedom. And so the last piece, this... uh, Great little story by Thornton Wilder, which I first knew about uh, in reading a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel Secret with uh, by Brennan Manning, written way back in 1928. Paul Zoll picked it up, and so a lot of us who might listen to him on Mockingbird or whatever else would have heard this, but uh, not reading the whole thing, but it was this is the whole thing, um, just three pages, because it was designed to be, uh, to be done in three minutes. Uh, It's called The Angel That Troubled the Waters, and it's based upon this part of John 5. And this won't take long. Um, Again, it's a three-minute play. But I won't even read the whole thing. There's there's a newcomer, a doctor, a physician, who comes down to the pool, and uh, and one other invalid who is also in the play. There's only the the doctor, the old invalid, and and an angel are the only three characters on on the... on the, uh, on the stage, and this doctor comes in, and the, the invalid, who's been there for 38 years, uh, sees him, and of course he has resentment. Just, oh, why are you here? You can walk. You've got a life. In fact, you healed my son. Why are you here? This is not for you. Go back. But the doctor has this inward wound. We're not sure what it was, a moral failing. Something that is there. His invalidity is something else other than, than being lame. Uh, and so the conversation picks up here where the, the, uh, the doctor, the newcomer, says, Come, long-expected love, this love which will not let him go, this love which he knows will make him have love for another, which will be healing. And he's wanting that love to come. And then the angel, it says, without turning, makes himself apparent to the newcomer, and that's the physician, and addresses him, Draw back, physician. This moment is not for you. And the physician says, Angelic visitor, I pray thee, listen to my prayer. And the angel says, Healing is not for you. The physician, Surely, surely the angels are wise. Surely, O prince, you are not deceived by my apparent wholeness. Your eyes can see the nets in which my wings are caught, the sin into which all my endeavors sink, half performed. They cannot be concealed from you. And the angel says, I know. The newcomer, it is no shame to boast to an angel of what I might yet do in love's service, were I but freed from this bondage. And then the, the mistaken invalid, the invalid in the story, in, in the gospel of 38 years, says, Surely the water is stirring strangely today. Surely I shall be made whole. And the angel says, I must make haste. Already the sky is afire with the gathering host, for it is the hour of the new song among us. The earth itself feels the preparation in the skies and attempts its hymn. 
Children born in this hour spend all their lives in sharper longing for the perfection that awaits them. And the physician, Oh, in such an hour I was born, and doubly fearful to me is the flaw in my heart. I must drag my shame, prince. Here we are. Prince and singer, all the days more bowed than my neighbor. And the angel says, as he stands in a moment of silence. I always get emotional when I read this part. Without your wound, where would your power be? It is your very remorse that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children on earth, as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love's service, only wounded soldiers can serve. Draw back. And the angel swiftly kneels and draws his finger through the water. The pool is astir with running ripples, and the increase of divine wind makes a gay surface, and the waves are flung upon the steps, and the mistaken man, the invalid, cast himself into the pool, and the whole company lurches in, rolls or hobbles. The servants rush in from the porch, turmoil finally, and no longer mistaken. The invalid emerges and leaps joyfully up the steps. The rest, coughing and sighing, follow him. The angel smiles for a moment and disappears. And then the healed man comes to the physician. Look, my hand is as new as a child's. Glory be to God. I have begun again. May you be the next, may you be next, my brother. But come with me first, an hour only, to my home. My son is lost in dark thoughts. I, I do not understand him. And only you have ever lifted his mood. Only an hour. My daughter, since her, ch- my daughter, since her child has died, sits in the shadow. She will not listen to us. And he goes on with the physician. Without your wounds, where would your power be? For it is your wounds that give your very low voice the very resonance for your healing. And the physician was told to draw back and put in the position of, he- of dependence to listen to the word of God and to find, in fact, that when he was given to be weak and vulnerable and dependent, to carry the shocking idea, to carry even a moral failing around the way that he did, that there, and only there, could he, in fact, find service. Um, So I'm going to leave it there. A little bit off tonic, but it's a good way to leave this series um, of an encounter with the actual, with reality, the actual Jesus, just with reality itself, uh, leaves us in sort of an off-tonic place. Without your wounds, where would your power be? Uh, And that little play is widely available online if you want to log in and get it. Let me pray. Lord, come and take these words humbly offered um, and make them yours. Lord, even as I rush to the end, I pray that you and your spirit would speak and uh, where I was weak, Lord, you would make your word strong where I have failed, Lord, that your strength would be perfected in my failure. Um, feeble words they are, that, they would, uh, that your words would be spoken, living and active, uh, able to restore and renew and recreate and to bring afresh uh, our lively and living faith in you. Come, Lord Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everyone. Good to see you.